Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will be diving into the theories of consumer behavior. We will define and discuss the foundational constructs that explain consumers' actions and provide detailed examples about how they apply to the sporting world. So, if you've ever wondered why an ad that made you cry could also get you to buy a product, or how your identity influences your purchase decisions, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the Sport Professor Podcast. This week, what I want to do is I want to really dive into the underlying theories of what consumer behavior is, what has shaped our ideas of what it is today. I want to really get into this notion of how do we take these theories and ideas that we're talking about and how do we put those into a practical sense? How are you going to be able, as future sport marketers, how are you going to be able to use these theories on a day-to-day basis? Without further ado, let's go ahead and get into underlying theories theories that really shape our present day idea of what consumer behavior is. But before we do that, I want to make sure that all of you have a basic understanding of the definition of consumer behavior. Because if we aren't on the same page with the definition, as we progress into these theories, they're not going to make sense. So I've provided two definitions for you all here. The first one is the one I like the most, and that is that consumer behavior is the dynamic interaction of a cognition, behavior, and the environment by which human beings conduct the exchange aspects of life. Now, there's a lot of aspects to this definition, so let's start by breaking it down. It says it's the interaction of effect and cognition. Well, what are we talking about when we're talking about affecting cognition? Affect is talking about our feelings and emotions. Cognition is talking about our thought process and how we think. So what we're saying here is that consumer behavior deals with an interaction of how we feel and how we think. And it gets to the next part and it says that that interaction of how we feel and how we think actually drives us to behave in a certain way. But it doesn't drive us to behave in a certain way all the time. And the third part of this definition, it says that how we behave based off our feelings and our thought processes is based on the environment that we are in. So depending on if I'm in a store or if I'm at a ball game, the environment is different, so how I interact is going to be different. But the ideas of consumer behavior, as this definition points out, can be applied to any context in which exchanges occur. And by exchanges, what we primarily are talking about is buying products or buying services. Now, the second definition is that consumer behavior is the study of buying units and the exchange processes involved in acquiring, consuming, and disposing of sporting goods, services, experiences, and ideas. So they're going a little bit more direct here and not hitting as many of the underlying principles as the first definition, but they're all getting to the same basic point. And that is that consumer behavior is simply the study of why we buy. Let's move that forward. Why do we care about why we buy? Why do we care about understanding human behavior? And why do we study it at all? Well, we research consumer behavior because we want to have more knowledge to make decisions. In the business world, 
We want to be those individuals that are making knowledge-based decisions. And oftentimes in the real world, managers and marketers do not do research to make decisions. They base those decisions off of history or maybe what their colleagues are doing. So they might base the decisions they make about how they're going to market their team or their games based off what they did last year without doing research to see how effective that marketing campaign was. Or they might look around the league, let's say Major League Baseball, they might look to see what the other teams in the league are doing. They might say, hey, everyone else is giving away bobbleheads, so let's just give away bobbleheads ourselves. Again, without researching to see if giving away bobbleheads actually leads to an increase in consumer satisfaction or increase in attendance. We call this in sport marketing myopia. This idea of not making decisions based off of research or based off of knowledge, rather being short-sighted and just doing whatever everyone else is doing or what we've done in the past. And there's another number of examples that we can think of. I mentioned baseball already. If we look at the baseball campaigns and the baseball marketing promotions that are out there, oftentimes we see the same thing everywhere. Think about the most common marketing campaigns in baseball. We'll have some type of bobblehead giveaway. We'll have firework shows after the game. We oftentimes will have some type of history day or throwback day where the team will wear old jerseys. We oftentimes see pet day or dog day. We'll see a reduced cost on beer or hot dogs. All of these are common things, and we could just do them and follow along with what everyone else does, but instead, it's better to do research to see how effective those are in influencing consumers, influencing them to choose to come to that game, influencing them to spend more once they're there, influencing them to be happier as they are there. Because remember, those ideas of being happy with your consumption or satisfied with your purchases, those things will lead to the consumer more than likely coming back in the future. Just because doing something might be a really good idea, it doesn't mean that the people that we have that are out there in charge of developing these marketing plans or putting these promotional plans into place, that they're going to see it. But if we have research, if we have information we will be more able to see what might work and what maybe more importantly won't work. This leads us to the theories that have underscored our understanding of consumer behavior over time. And we've kind of seen this evolution of these theories that explain this interaction that we described in our beginning definition, this interaction of cognition or our thought process in our emotion. That's our common day perception, but it isn't how it's always been. So if we track back to the 1940s, when we really have consumer behavior starting to be studied a little bit more, we had what we called an economic theory that underscored consumer behavior. In this view, it argued that consumers are rational calculating individuals who buy things based on the performance of what they're buying and the price. The theory states that I will value things that perform better and I will pay more for those. And if something performs worse, I'm not going to pay the same price. So think about this within sports. The economic theory of consumer behavior would say that I, as a fan, when the Patriots are bad, I'm not going to pay as much to go and see them. That makes sense. Just like the worst teams in basketball, this year will probably be the Atlanta Hawks, we are not going to pay as much to go see because of their performance. In fact, we might not consume them at all. 
because economic theory states that we're rational and calculating, that we won't spend money on something that we don't see value. And value is based on this determination or this judgment of the performance of that product or service against the price. Now, this was a good starting point, but if you notice there's something particular that's missing here, this idea of economic theory deals only with cognition, only with rational thought. It does not take into consideration emotion. And so in the 1950s, we had another theory developed to explain consumer behavior called the psychological theory. This one stated that consumers are irrational and compulsive decision makers. They say that consumers are passive and vulnerable and subject to external influences. The word that they're not using here is emotional. It's that idea that the reason that we are vulnerable and subject to external forces is because we make decisions based off emotion. So if you can move my emotions with some type of advertisement, that'd be an external force. If you can make me feel something, then I'll buy it. But again, just like with economic theory, the psychological theory of consumer behavior only deals with one part of our initial definition. It only hits on the emotional aspect. It doesn't tie in at all the, the economic or doesn't tie in at all the cognitive theory. In the 1960s and 70s, we progressed that a little bit more. And we see this blending of the two theories. This blending of cognition or our mental thought process of the economic theory with the emotional aspect of being vulnerable to external influences in that psychological theory. This theory really began because we started to see a growth in business schools in the 50s and 60s. The idea is that the consumers are quote-unquote cognitive men, but they are actively searched for information on the product. Meaning, they're cognitive. They want to make decisions and buy things that are the best performing or the best value for the lowest price. But that is not the only thing that will influence them. They actually will seek out information and then we as the marketers or the sellers of a product will be able to attract them to us if we can tie in to this emotion that they might have. So it's a combination of the two. Now that progresses a little bit more in the 1980s when we have this theory of the influence of a cluttered marketplace. Here, the view of consumers is that a consumer is a cognitive miser with decreased time for shopping and increased choices in the marketplace. So in the 80s, they said, look, people have so much stuff going on. They don't have enough time to gather information and make cognitive decisions like we were talking about in the previous iterations. Instead, because of that decreased time and because in the 1980s, we saw an increase in the number of products on the marketplace that the consumer, they would just choose whatever they felt might be the best product. So they had less time for shopping decisions and they had greater choice in the market, which led to more confusion amongst consumers, which led to them making choices more based on emotion because they had less time to do the research. But that changes pretty drastically in the 1990s and, and into present day or the globalization of the world. Think about how the internet has influenced this. In the 1980s, we had decreased time and increased choices in the marketplace. That caused issues. In the 1990s and 2000s, the amount of time we have hasn't changed a whole lot. However, the ease of shopping has. So the amount of time it takes to shop has decreased. So in the 80s, when we had a decreased amount of time to do the shopping because we were more busy, in the 90s, we're still busy. We don't have as much time to do shopping, but the time it takes to do shopping has been reduced drastically because I can get online and I can shop for anything I want all over the world in just a couple of clicks. 
And as a result of this globalization, the increase in the ease of shopping and our access to all these different options, we start to pay more and more attention to the differences in products rather than the similarities. We start to look and gather more information. The notion of gathering more information deals with the cognitive, but we can still be driven to make a decision based off emotional factors or effective factors. And so we see this progression from an economic theory of only cognition to a psychological theory, which only emotion, to a blending of the two where people are doing research but making decisions also based on emotion, to the next generation where we see more of a crowded marketplace, a decreased time for shopping, and so choice becomes a lot harder, to the modern day where we still have a decreased time, still have a high level of options, but the ease of shopping based on the internet has actually changed consumption behaviors. So we're able to have more options, do more research and make more well-informed decisions. This is a very basic theory that has been talked about by scholars for quite a while. Another theory of consumer behavior deals with these five different models. So the first model that's talked about within the second theory is what we call the market response model. The market response model depicts how advertising price and promotional measures directly influence sales, market share, and brand choice. This leads to studies finding that marketing only has a short-term effect. So the market response model looks at what is the marketing campaign that this company has done? What is the message that they're giving and how are people responding to that? The findings from studies that have looked at the market response model have shown these marketing campaigns that are being done only lead to a short term response. Meaning if I'm doing a marketing campaign for a product like Budweiser, the marketing campaign might give me a short term increase in my sales, but the longevity of that increase in sales will not be there. And we can look at probably the most controversial marketing campaign that's going on right now with Nike and their Colin Kaepernick ads. If you look at the numbers, since they announced that partnership, sales have increased by some estimates of about 33%. But the market response model would say that those increases in sales based on that marketing campaign will only be short-lived. And that eventually will die back off and will stabilize at what the market was before. The second model that we want to talk about here deals with this cognition model, which we continue to talk about. So just like the economic model, this cognition model says that we make choices based off rational thought, that individuals look to compare and contrast their different choices. They'll compare and contrast things like the quality, the benefits of the product, what the product can do and price points. And based off this comparisons, they will make decisions. So think about what examples might play into this. Think about your own personal life and things that you might compare and contrast. All of you probably have cell phones. And when you purchase a cell phone, that's a pretty big purchase nowadays. The newest Apple phone is $1,000. So normally before you might purchase that, you're gonna do research. You're gonna compare the iPhone to the Android, maybe to the Blackberry. You're gonna look at the benefits that each of those phones have. You're gonna look at what they're really good at and what they do well and what they're deficient at. And based off those comparisons, you're going to make judgments about the quality of the product and what price point you're willing to pay. And then you're going to make a decision. In sport, we do this too. We have a problem, uh, oftentimes, something we call cherry-picking games. Meaning, if I'm a consumer and I really like, let's say, the Cincinnati Reds, I'm not maybe going to go to every game. I don't want to buy season tickets. I'm not rich. But what I want to do is I want to go to five games throughout the season. So, 
what am I going to do? Just pick five games at random? No. What the cognitive model says is I'm going to compare and contrast those games. So I'm going to look at things like what day of the week is the game on? Who's playing in that game? What time of the year is it? What time of the day is the game? And then what promotional item they might be giving away? So I might go through and pick the five games against the teams that are the best, the day of the week that is best for me, or the promotional item. So we're dealing with this cognitive thought process. The third one deals more with that effective model that we've already hit on in previous series as well. The effective model, just like the psychological model, says that our decision-making is solely emotional. Try to enact emotions to get people to buy a product. So if I'm a marketer, I want to generate emotional responses from you, and hopefully that emotional response will get you to buy. And again, let's try to think of examples of this. Think of products in your life or commercials maybe that you've seen that have actually driven you into action. One of my favorite commercials that is always done is the polar bear commercials that are done around Christmas time with Coke. Now, what are those polar bear commercials all about? Those polar bear commercials, they're not telling you about how good the product is or the benefits of choosing Coke or the price point of Coke. So they're not trying to get you into some cognitive decision. Rather, they're trying to enact an emotion in you. They're trying to get you to feel something. Oftentimes, it's trying to feel a sense of family or a love of animals or nature. Think about it. Those commercials normally highlight some type of parent bear and then some type of cub. And they oftentimes show the cub getting into a peculiar situation and then the mom or the dad bear coming to the rescue. Well, the idea there is it's supposed to make you feel something inside and that hopefully just that feeling inside, that that feeling will drive you to go out and buy a Coke. We see this in sport too. Think about history days that we do or old timers day that we that are very common in baseball or throwback jersey day that we do in basketball these types of promotions are done to try to solicit some type of emotional response why do we care about doing a throwback day for the boston red sox well if i'm living in boston at the time and they do a throwback day where they're going to wear jerseys from the 1950s when ted williams was playing Maybe my dad's going to take me because my dad remembers Ted Williams and he thinks Ted Williams is the greatest ball player of all time. It's enacting some type of emotion in him. And so that use of nostalgia, which is such a great emotional driving factor, will actually drive me to go to the game. Same thing with the throwback basketball jerseys. It's marketed towards an older crowd that's going to have some type of nostalgia or emotional response to that. And so they're going to want to come to the game. And so we have this effective model of consumer behavior as well. We then have two more, the persuasive hierarchy model. This is a hierarchy model that that exists within cognition. So what it says is we think about something first and then we have a feeling and that that feeling will drive us to act. There's also something called the low involvement hierarchy, which states something similar. So it's this idea of this interaction between cognition, our thought process, the effect or our emotional process, and then an action. If we look at this a little bit more, we can actually play around with the interaction of those three. The very simple model would say that I have a thought, I'm driven to have an emotional response, and then that emotional response will get me to actually do something. And so that's the basic form, but we can switch those up. We can switch it up to say, let's first make them have a feeling, whether that's feeling of happiness or joy or satisfaction or love, whatever positive feeling we're trying to initiate. So let's get them to have a feeling first. And then after they have that feeling, uh, maybe we make additional information available so they can go through the cognitive process of 
actually trying to find out more about the product and do a comparison. And that hopefully after they do that cognitive process of finding information that drives them into action of buying the ticket. So we can try to initiate a motion, then provide them information, and that will drive them into an action. We can hopefully give them information, which drives them into an emotion, which then drives action. Or we could even have them do an action, which makes them feel something, and then that drives them to think about it more. And it becomes a circle. How do we have an individual have an action before having a feeling or a thought about it? Well, think about a lot of the promotional items that are set up around a sporting event. You've already bought the ticket, so you're already there. But go inside. Let's say we're, again, at a baseball game. And I'm walking around the baseball game. And they have something set up for kids or adults to see how fast you can throw a baseball. Well, that's an action, right? That's me actually doing something. Let's say I do that thing and I throw the ball 100 miles an hour. I now have information about how fast I can throw. Well, by throwing 100 miles an hour, that leads me to have an emotional response. It makes me feel happy and proud and satisfied. So I threw the baseball, I got information about how fast I could throw it, and that resulted in me having some type of emotional response. And what happens is that positive emotional response I have to what I just did, hopefully that will drive me to maybe wanting to come back to a game. Because now I'm leaving the game feeling happy, feeling satisfied feeling like I got great value for my ticket. All these are emotions that I'm putting out there. That's a way that we can use an action and give you information about that action, which then leads to an emotion, which will hopefully then drive you to wanting to return to a game. Another theory of consumer behavior is called the means end approach. So with the means end approach, what we first do, we first identify what the goal of the consumer is. What do they want out of this product or this service or this activity or this sporting event, whatever it is, but what do they want out of this product? We try to identify their goal. And so a great example is losing weight. An individual's goal is to lose weight. That's the what. The what is the end that they're looking for. We then look at why are they motivated to do that? What's driving them to want to lose weight? Maybe they want to lose weight to be more attractive. Maybe they want to lose weight to be healthier, be more fit, or maybe they want to lose weight because it will help them save money. So once we understand what the motivation is, that's the end, we then look at why they're motivated, and then we look at the means or the how-to. We then come in as the product or service or good that's being sold to them, and we say, how do you achieve that goal? With losing weight, for example, let's say that there's two main ways to lose weight. There's dieting and there's exercising. Both of those deal with how to reach the goal. And then we as a company could come in and say, okay, well, we know dieting is an option. And so we can say, okay, well, we're going to focus on selling items to individuals whose goal is to lose weight by selling items that are healthier for them. That in and of itself won't get the individual to buy it. What we do is we go up and we look at the motivation. So let's say that they are motivated to lose weight because they want to be healthier. So what I do in my ad campaign for my food now that I'm selling that is healthier is I highlight the health benefits of the food. I highlight that it's lower in sodium, that it's less calories, that it's lower fat. And by highlighting those things that are motivating the person to lose weight, I'm increasing the likelihood that they're going to choose my product. Because remember, a lot of these theories are based on this notion of cognition, meaning thought process in comparison of products. So if they know what their goal is, and I'm providing them information about how my product helps them attain their goal and 
is based in what their motivation is, then they're more likely to consume my product. Likewise, let's say that another way that you can go about losing weight is exercising. So for example, let's say that I'm a recreation department and I know people that are trying to lose weight are going to come to exercise and they're exercising in my recreation department because they want to lose weight. Why? Let's change it now. Let's say it's because they want to be more attractive. So how am I going to advertise to them? I'm going to focus on this aspect of reaching their end of losing weight, but I'm going to use attractive people in my advertisement because what they're going to see is that if I go exercise at this recreation department, not only will I lose weight, but I will be more attractive. I'm trying to use that emotion of being more attractive, of feeling good about yourself and your identity. Within this means end, we can combine some of these other theories of cognition and effect, and we can say, if I, as a person who sells a product, can identify the what, what end are you trying to get out of my product, and I know why you're trying to achieve that end, then all I have to do is figure out a means for you to achieve that end and highlight the why factor. Let's take this into an example of sport. What would be an end that we're trying to achieve with sport consumption? Let's say one of the ends I'm trying to achieve is to make new friends. Let's say you move out to San Francisco for a new job. You don't know anyone in San Francisco, but you take a job there. Well, I want to make friends. That is the end goal that I'm looking to achieve. Why do I want to make more friends? Maybe I'm lonely. Maybe I want to make more friends because I want people to go out to dinner with. And so those are all the whys. So now as, let's say, the San Francisco Giants... Now we can say, okay, we understand that there's these, these, these people that are moving to our area that want to make friends. That's the end that they're looking at. They want to make new friends because they want people to hang out with. They're lonely. They want people to, to tell them different aspects of the city so they can learn more about it. How do I position my product to get them to buy my product to achieve the end they want? Well, I highlight their motivating factors. So they're lonely. Okay, well, maybe I set up an advertising campaign that shows an individual watching a game of baseball alone on their couch. And then I show them somehow getting tickets. So I show them buying tickets online or getting a phone call or getting free tickets in the mail, whatever it is. And then I cut to them at the game surrounded by a group of people high-fiving after the Giants hit a home run. I've just shown that, gosh, if you come to my game... You will be able to make friends. I'm trying to tap into that emotional motivation. So hopefully by having an advertising campaign like that, by having a campaign that's centered around this idea of if you come and consume my product, you will be able to make friends here. And hopefully if I do that, that will actually drive them into the action. So what I've done is I've tried to motivate them. I'm trying to hit on that emotion first, which drives them into an action, which is that that idea of purchasing tickets and coming, which then leads to them getting information about the team more. And as they come to the game once, hopefully then they'll come back to the game in the future. That's the means ends approach. It says the first thing that we do is we look at the end that the, that the individual is trying to achieve. And then we look at their motivation and we try to position our product in a way that meets that that motivating factor. And finally, our last model, the model of sport consumption. This model takes all these different aspects that we've been talking about and puts them into one. What it tries to do is it tries to break out 
every aspect and combine them into one model that will describe why it is that you buy. Remember, the whole point of understanding consumer behaviors is understanding why people buy so I can better position my product to sell you that product. This model, if we start at the very beginning, says that individuals have internal motivations that drive them to buy something. And those internal motivations are based off of our personality, our personal needs, and our culture. And that each of those interact to create personal values. And that personal values lead to us having individual personalized goals. Once we understand what those goals are, the attitudinal theory comes in to say that those goals interact with our identification with teams. So how we identify with teams and our fandom in team identification impacts our attitude towards the product. And the attitude towards the product is influenced by a decision-making process. We're trying to learn information about something, that cognitive, where we become aware of it. We try to evaluate the product. We gather information. We do a comparative analysis of it. And that influences our attitude towards the product as well. So our attitude towards the product is influenced by an internal aspect, our own individual social identities, and our cognitive process of gathering information, evaluating that information, and comparing that product then to other products, that that also influences our attitude. So we have these two pathways to influencing our attitude about the product. Once we have that attitude about the product, we then have an intention to consume it. Either we make a decision to consume it or we don't. If we make a decision to go ahead and consume it, then the pathway continues and we have an initial consumption of product. So we take that product in, whether that means buying a drink or a new coat or in sport, buying that sporting ticket or the peripheral products around the sporting event, whether that's a beer or merchandise. We have that initial consumption of the product that then leads us to have either a disconfirmation or confirmation of our expectations. Those expectations are built off our attitude. So if I have an attitude towards a product that says I'm going to like this product because it goes well with my internal motives, which are my social identity, and I've gathered on this information, I think it's the best product I want. So those two pathways come together to say I'm going to like this product. I then make the decision to consume that product and I consume it. I then am going to have a reaction to that. Either my initial attitude is going to be confirmed that I like the product or it's going to be disconfirmed that I don't like it. After I either have that confirmation or disconfirmation, I then have some type of effective response. If I like the product, it's going to make me happy. It's going to make me feel good. If I don't like it, I'm going to feel regret. I'm going to feel like maybe I missed out on a different product that might have liked better. I'm going to have a negative emotional response. That then is going to affect my self-esteem. If I chose a product and I have this effective response that says, that's confirmative that I like it, that might make me feel really great about myself. Gosh, I'm so great about picking products or I'm so great at picking what team to to follow. I'm the best. I'm very positive about it. If I have that positive interaction, it means I'm going to become much more loyal to the product because I had that great emotional response. It's positive. I'm going to respond by being loyal, which means it's going to affect my future intentions to come back to this over and over and over. On the other side, if I have that disconfirmation, it goes against what I thought in a negative way. I had the a belief that I was going to like the product. I didn't like the product. That's going to make me think 
negatively. That negative thing is gonna make me feel worse about myself. I wish I would have picked a better product. I thought it'd be good. I'm obviously a bad judge. That's gonna mean I'm gonna become disloyal to the product. I don't wanna consume it again, which affects my future intentions. So while this is a pretty complex model, it does really well to tie in all these aspects that we're talking about and explains how complex sport consumption is. And we've come a long way since that initial economic model in the 1940s that just said people are, are rational individuals and they make rational decisions. This is saying that, yes, while people are somewhat rational in their decision making, there's other factors outside of just that rationality that's going to affect their choice to consume a product. A lot of people will question the value of understanding these theories. They'll say, it's great to know what academics are saying or what research has shown, but that's not enough. I'm going to argue that understanding the theories of why people do things will lead you to being better sport managers. If I understand why people are consuming my product, then it will allow me to position my product in a way that those people will buy it. And hopefully, if I understand why certain people buy it, then I can get them to buy it more and more and more, and maybe pay more and more and more for it, which leads to me increasing how much money I can make. So hopefully we've been able to shine some light for all of you who are interested in entering into the sport management and sport marketing field. And for those of you who aren't, hopefully we've been able to lay a foundation so you can better understand the actions that your favorite sport teams take to try to get you to come to games. If you have any questions on this or other sport-related topics, please feel free to reach out to us at thesportprofessor.com.